This podcast is created and produced by Innovator. If you're looking to cut back or eliminate hot work on your next job, or for all of your industrial services needs, visit innovator.ca. Hello and welcome to the Industrial Innovators Podcast, hosted by founder and CEO of Innovator, Don Cooper. I'm Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and this week we have got a longtime friend and business associate of Don's with us, Colin Livingston, founder of Cantork. They discuss their long history together, technologies they're utilizing and developing in the world of bolting, where the businesses are at, and what they see for the future. So let's hear what they have to say. Good day, everyone. This is Don Cooper, and this is the Industrial Innovators Podcast. Today, we have a longtime friend of mine, Colin Livingston from Cantork, and today we are going to talk about Colin's business and specifically around everything he's doing with manufacturing and distribution and supply of hydraulic torque wrenches. Good day, Colin. How's it going, buddy? Oh, pretty good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. We uh, we got about an hour and a half to chat. You've got a flight to catch. Are you needing to be off uh, at three fifteen, or are you? Uh, or is that when you got your flight? Oh no, I fly uh, later on this afternoon. I just need okay. to get to the airport, but uh, domestic flight, and I'm just carrying on, so it shouldn't be too bad. Perfect. I'll uh, we'll try to extract as much out of you as possible for the audience so uh, you can fill up an hour and a half uh talking about uh talking about torque wrenches and industry we could probably fill up an hour and a half talking about bolting war stories before either one of us had a company so (laughs) so uh a little bit of history um colin and i uh have known each other for at least 25 years i think we started working together as uh as bolting technicians in either late 1994 or early 95. 94, I think, is when it happened. Um, And uh, we've done lots of jobs together in those early days as a couple of young bolting technicians. And then... uh, and then later on in our careers, we just uh, evolved into in, into different directions in the same space. So um, I think uh, if if memory serves me right, Colin, I was even a usher in uh, in your wedding, from what I remember back about 24 years ago. Well, uh, your memory lasted longer than my marriage, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how, how could you forget that? No, um, yeah, definitely go back a long way. Uh, very fortunate to be able to call you a friend. Um, you know, there, there are certain people that you run across in industry, um, that, you know, I mean, you and I don't talk an awful lot, but when we do, it's, uh, it's always meaningful. And, you know, you're one of the people that, that I have in my world that, um, it doesn't matter if we go, um, you know, 10 days or 10 months without speaking, it just kind of gets picked up right back where right, we left yeah, off. Right, right wherever it left off. I, I agree a hundred percent. It's yeah. uh, it's a really strange thing, but some people you just have a relationship with that your friends, even if you don't talk for a couple of years, it's uh, and, that, and that's actually a really good thing. Um, let's dive in a little bit and talk about Cantork. I remember when you started the business, but you know, our audience is uh, this is in Cloudlandia and this is a, will go around the world and you know, either two people or 10,000 people will hear it. So, you know, let's tell everyone who is Cantor. Uh, as of now, uh, we've, we've gone through a lot of uh, evolution from the first day that I started the business in the year 2000. Um, Cantork is now a manufacturer of, of industrial torque and assembly tools, torque tension and assembly tools. Uh, we're based here in Edmonton. Uh, we um, 
have all of our engineering done in town, our, our machining is done in town, then we assemble and test everything uh, by ourselves in, in uh, my office here. Okay. Uh, and you're distributing those products on a uh, national scale, uh, scale, North American scale, global, like what's your, what's your, uh, what's your coverage? The, the majority of our business right now is national, but, um, you know, being a manufacturer, we're getting a lot of interest and I'm spending a lot of time uh, working on adding international distribution. Uh, we have some specific um, markets right now like UAE um, and the, the, you know, the GCC um, that's uh, top for us. Uh, we're working on a couple of uh, distributors in the U.S. right now and then we've got a fairly good um uh, stranglehold on on um, on offshore wind turbines in Europe. Okay, I I have a, I have a few colleagues who are heavy into uh, offshore wind turbines in the North Sea that uh, I might I should hook you up with. Um, uh, and when it, it, you you mentioned uh, distribution uh, in those markets, do you sell uh, direct to customers as well? Uh, outside of Canada, no, uh, we just go through distribution. I mean, you know, it, in an area we don't have coverage, we don't have a lot of choice. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, because our evolution started when, when we started the business, uh, we operated as a distributor and, and, um, we've got people that I've dealt with personally, um, or through the company for, you know, almost 20 years that it's tough to go back to our, our good accounts and say, Hey, I know you've, you've treated us well over the years, but now you need to go through, you know, uh, Joe's tool shop. Right. Uh, so we do a mix, but we're really careful to protect our distributors to make sure that, you know, end users don't ever get the same price as a distributor, even an infrequent distributor that, um, that we protect those guys domestically. It's, it's kind of confusing, but um, you know, we're working on, on uh, standardizing through distribution. It's just a, it takes a long time. Sure. Um, tell me about the history of the company. You mentioned you started it in 2000. Uh, how did it start? How did it evolve? You know, tell the audience, you know, what you've been doing for 20 years. <laughs> well, your memory is probably better than mine. I don't remember half of what I've done over this period of time, but, um, you know, realistically, um, the, the, the truth of the matter is I got fired from my last job and that was on October 26, 2000. And I'll never forget the date. Um, I was a, a salesman slash sales manager. I represented um, all of the offices in Western Canada for a particular company. Um, had showed up to work uh, that morning and the president of the company was waiting in my office at my desk um, and informed me that my services were no longer required. Um, I didn't have, you know, essentially I didn't have a pot to piss in, if I can use that kind yep. of term on your on your podcast. This is an, this is an industrial podcast, and I don't think there's uh, it's G rated. We don't need to uh, layer on too much uh, profanity, but I don't think anyone will be offended. Uh, so yeah, I look, let's just say that I, I was lacking a place to uh, to expel urine. Um, yeah, didn't have any cash, didn't have a hope. My we had one son at the time. Um, he had just turned a year old ten days before that. We were just over a year into our first mortgage, and now I was unemployed. Um, so there was, you know, I want to say that there was a moment of terror, but it was kind of an instant motivation where um, I didn't have a vehicle, I didn't have a cell phone, I didn't have anything. And, and yes, back in the year 2000, cell phones were invented. Um, I think we were still carrying pagers at the same time, but um, it was probably I, a fl it was probably a flip phone, right? Uh, if it was, it was probably a bag phone, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. We might have to throw up a, a graphic so people know what those are. But um, because I didn't have 
my own vehicle. I was driving a company vehicle. Um, one of one of my I, I'll call them my technicians, although I was no longer employed by the company, um, offered me a ride home. Um, I made a quick stop at a payphone, called my prime supplier at the time, and said, "Hey, you'll never guess what happened. Um, I got fired." Um, which is kind of funny because now that I've I've had you know, almost 20 years to go through all these things and talk to a number of people. My, my former prime supplier was actually one of the catalysts for um, cutting, cutting my legs out from underneath me. Um, I stopped, I mean, you know my father-in-law. Um, I stopped and talked to my father-in-law who operated a very successful uh, automotive manufacturing business, Don Campbell of Campbell Automotive. And um, I said to him, like, you'll never guess what happened. Because, I, I mean, I was, without sounding arrogant, I was a rock star within their business. I was the youngest guy. I, I you know, I was the highest grossing um, or the highest profiting um, office with the highest total, you know, profit percentage. We made more money on the amount of sales that we did than the offices that did uh, three and four times our volume. Um, that being said, um, you know, Don looked at me not you, Don, my father-in-law, Don, looked at me and said, what are you going to do? I said, I know what I did to get to this point. I think I'm going to try it on my own. And, you know, somehow 20 years later, we're still, we're still around and kicking. Right on. And uh, when, you, uh, when you first started, I remember those days, you, um, you weren't the manufacturer. You, uh, you, you were effectively a distributor, right? We sold everything. Um, like, I, I was recounting this story to um, you know to somebody the other day at lunch. Where in the beginning um, it would have been ideal to just focus on torque wrenches and focus on bolting tools, but that we didn't have a big enough customer base, and you know we just weren't deep enough into it to to make a you know to make a living and to survive. So I had pretty good relationships with a handful of my customers that I said, "Hey, listen, I'm on my own. If there's anything that I can do to help, let me know." And in the early days, and, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not making any of this up. I sold Makita grinders. I sold little pistol grip impact wrenches. I sold like two kilometers of OT2 welding cable. Now, if you showed me a sample of five different types of cable, I can't tell you what OT2 welding cable is to this day. But I knew somebody at a, at a company that was willing to sell to me on credit. And I had a customer that was willing to buy at, at the number. And, and in the beginning, it was about survival. Yep. Fortunately, things went well enough after, you know, uh, say about 18, 18 to 24 months that I was able to kind of get rid of the, the you know, accessory stuff and, and really just focus on bolting tools. Right on. You know, um, I think about this a lot because, you know, you, you and I had similar journeys in terms of uh, being employees and, uh, and realizing that we're, we, we weren't wired for that. And, uh, you know, and I won't go down the journey of, uh, of marriages and divorces. Those are, those are all lessons that we all need to learn. I, 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 I think I've told Wyatt and, uh, and uh, his colleague on my team, Brennan, you know, the advice I give my kids is uh, don't get married till you're 35 or, or older, and you'll figure out who you are and what you want, and you won't make the uh, the mistakes of your father. Because um, it took yeah. me until I was in my mid thirties to find the uh, the right relationship that uh, was that, that was that was you know will be a lifelong relationship. And the the ones before that were uh, uh, what is my um, 
one, one of my coaches, Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach, says that his first two marriages were practice marriages, so he could figure out how to get it right the third time. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'll go on record and say that I have the very best ex-wife in the entire world. Um, Leanne and I still get along uh, great. Um, there's a real funny story there, but it doesn't really apply to this. But, you know, again, you know, memory's not so great. But uh, I, I remember back when we had our first marriages that you and I couldn't have been told anything. So it could have been the exact, the exact right piece of advice. And yeah. you and I would have gone. Yeah, we, would, we wouldn't have listened in those days. But, uh, you know, I, I guess wisdom is, wisdom is learned through mistakes, right? <laughs> I wouldn't change a thing. I mean. No, I mean I'm, I'm the same way. You, you learn from it. And, uh, and, and we both got wonderful kids because of it. So. You betcha. Um, so we're going to talk about um, torquing and tensioning. Now, it, it's likely that most of our audience uh, has some idea what, what uh, technical bolting is and torquing and tensioning. But, you know, there's also people who are subscribers who, uh, who joined our podcast because of other technology, and they just want to learn more. So why don't you uh, tell us about uh, torquing and tensioning and then particularly dive into a little bit of the, uh, the various torquing products that uh, you're focused on? First of all, um, you know, we've been, you know, manufacturing, I say that in quotes, because our first, our first go around was, was working with a subcontractor or working with somebody who was already um, going down the road of manufacturing, and then they private labeled for us. So we really didn't have any input into how the wrenches were built, um, but they started saying Cantorque, which was, was really big. Um, it was a really important lesson that I had to learn uh, the hard way, which tends to be my my uh, modus operandi, um, that I had spent a lot of time branding for my former uh, supplier. I had spent a lot of time marketing under their name instead of the name that I had built. Uh, once I kind of figured out um, that, you know, we do have a, you know, a good reputation and Cantorque is a brand that I'm very proud of. Um, it, it, it was an evolution. So what we do now as, as of, um, as of today is um, we make um, basically two, uh, two types of torque wrenches. We make what's called a square drive torque wrench. So it's, it's a hydraulic powered tool um, that uses impact sockets to uh, tighten and loosen a variety of fasteners, typically about as small as three quarters of an inch up to virtually any size. Um, as, as of now, I've got uh, nine and a quarter inch sockets on my shelf, as well as 225 millimeter sockets. And we have tools that will, will turn all those. And then we have a uh, low profile range for uh, people who are more focused on weight of wrenches, or they have a smaller uh, access gap uh, to fit a tool. Um, and we make those from as low as um, about a hundred foot pounds um, up to about 45,000 foot pounds. So, um, you know, I've got, I've got a tool on paper right now that's going to be over a hundred thousand foot pounds, but I'm just going to make that to say that I have the biggest wrench. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, you know, uh, at, at my heart, I'm a bolting technician, although I haven't, uh, operated a torque wrench or tensioner in a lot of years, but that's, that's my foundation. What I can honestly say is I don't ever want to use a hundred thousand pound, a hundred thousand foot pound torque wrench, um, I'd rather tension it or, or, or have someone else do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which is great. And I would rather supply a, a five or a six inch tensioner. But as you know, a lot of cases have, um, you know, insulations with short fasteners or yeah, there's, the, there's a lot, there's, you know, there, there are probably a hundred times more applications out there that 
absolutely need a hydraulic torque wrench because they were never designed or set up for tensioning. And so, and the versatility of a torque wrench versus um, the the size specific of a tensioner just gives it more flexibility when you're not set up for tensioning. So, hundred percent. And and the good thing is now that we're in the positions we're in, we don't typically have to operate the tools anymore. We get to have people do that, or I I'm fortunate that I just get to supply them, and other people operate them. So I I, uh, I don't know that I'll ever go back and jump on the tools. I, I think the the last time I was on the tools on a shutdown was about uh, 2013 or 2014, uh, and that was more out of choice because I just wanted to. Do get back to my roots, and I spent the spring on shutdowns, and it was fun, and um, and it's you know, and it was it's where I cut my teeth, right? But um, sure. yeah, I got other people who do that, and they love doing that, and uh, I uh, I just try to create an environment for them to be successful now. So yeah, I was lucky; I got to go back, and um, you know, through uh, through an industry uh, friend of mine, uh, they were working on a really strange application. Um, for a piece of mining equipment and uh, it required, you know, we had to go through um, with, with a little bit of hydraulic torquing and some ultrasonic measurement to, to validate a bolting process. So uh, through the testing we did in his shop and then at the uh, customer's location, I, uh, I got to shake some of the, uh, the cobwebs out and try and refamiliarize myself with ultrasonics. Yeah, I would say I'm probably better on bolting theory than on bolting practice these days. I would guess most of my team would would consider that I'm the uh, I'm the old timer now, and I might hurt myself or uh, or at least just uh, forget how to do it uh, with uh, the most modern uh, the, mo- the most modern accepted uh, procedures that we deploy today. So I'll I'll leave that up to my team. They're a thousand times better at it than me. So. Um, so, you know, you, you talked about distribution and about branding, but you're now a manufacturer. Um, walk us through that journey, how you switched from, uh, you know, uh, from, I guess, white labeling someone else's product to going through the journey you had with coming up with your own designs uh, and why. Well, um, yeah, I mean, the way things, the, the way things ended with our, our prime supplier was not ideal. Um, I'd, I'd rather avoid that part of the conversation, but yeah, once yeah, no, yeah, we saw sure. the writing was on the wall, um, you know, we had an opportunity to uh, to move into a lateral line, but have our own name on a wrench. Um, the problem we had was that the quality of the tools just wasn't to our standard, and and you know the the you know to compound the problem, now it had my name on it. Right. So you know, it's something I take seriously. Um, the problem is, you know, we live in a we live in a really instant society where people want their information now. They want solutions now. They want absolutely everything at the snap of a finger. But when it comes to developing wrenches or to analyze issues or um, you know I- implement um, improvements, it takes a long time. You know, to to sit down, try and analyze why something failed. Is it a material issue? Was it a procedural issue? Was it um, you know, was a bad design? Was it bad manufacturing? Trying to figure that out takes a long time. And then you have to implement a solution or a proposed solution. You have to prototype that solution. And then on and on and on and on it goes. Um, the, the relationship we had with the second company lasted about two and a half years. Uh, we were then connected with somebody else who was um, into the road of manufacturing tools um, the relationship worked well, but we had a bit of a, a language barrier. They were um, overseas in uh, in Europe. Um, that you know, they were great at machining, and we were great at 
you know, supplying the tools, but neither one of us had really made these things. And, and uh, again, the lessons learned and the development that it took um, was, was quite costly and really time consuming. Um, it was, um, I would say about four or five years ago, uh, we got introduced to a local engineering firm um, and in turn a local, um, you know, set of machine shops that really cut down our production time and really increased our level of communication because we were now able to come up with a drawing on a computer here in town, bring it to the shop, get them to take a look at the design at the same time. Yes, this will work. No, it won't. Or you might want to look at this. And, um, you know, since we, we consolidated everything here in town, everything has been, I should, I can't say it's been smooth because we've still had some design uh, revisions that we had to make. We've, we found out a lot. Uh, we have a couple of really high volume users, um, you know, that, that, um, they, they can generate a lifetime's worth of use in under a year. They, they run in real time, they run 10 to 12 hours a day. And now it sounds like they're expanding their, their operations. So the site and, and all their wrenches do is break things apart and put it back together all day aside from break. So they're really our, our prime proving ground. Um, but that's also like in, in racing, uh, you know, as again, I, I have a bit of a, an affinity for, you always look at your weakest point and then keep improving from there. And uh, that just moves the break point somewhere else. I mean, no matter what our competitors say, wrenches are going to break. We cannot build an indestructible wrench because no matter how good we make it, there's always going to be somebody out there that's going to find a new way to break it. But um, we've, we've spent a lot of time on, on weight savings, increasing speed, and, and sim simplifying the tools. And we're, we're really starting to go in a different direction than most companies. Cool. I, I, I'll speak to the the whole idea that people, you know, you know, the variety of, of manufacturers in this space will talk about their tool being unbreakable or it lasts forever or it lasts for a long time. And, you know, there's only two things that are true about um, that are true about hydraulic torquing from my perspective as a as a, both a technician and an owner of a lot of torquing equipment. And that is um, uh, all you really need to understand is at what point can you expect it to break? based on how often you use it and how expensive is it going to be to fix when it does break. And, you know, that comes down to that. Those are all design and testing things. And, you know, I know every wrench is going to break and is the wrench going to explode with 5,000 parts inside, or is it a good, robust, simple design that is uh, repairable and, you know, repairable in a way that, you know, isn't going to, you know, cost you 90% of the capital cost for the tool to begin with. And, uh, and, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm, I've seen every, every manufacturer out there and there's only a few uh, who have figured out the, the cost effective way to maintain when things break. And uh, uh, some of the biggest players out there on a global basis, I, I really do believe that their designs are, uh, are created to, to drive revenue on replacement parts. Yeah, I can't speak to to other manufacturers, but I mean, since day one, it's it's been company policy here that you know, regardless of what the warranty states, if if we supply a tool and it fails for any reason at any time, whether it's a genuine manufacturing defect or somebody drove over it with a D10, we'll always provide a loaner tool um, for a company to use while theirs is getting fixed or replaced or what have you, because. Right. Um, industry standard until we really came up with that was you break a tool then you either had to buy a tool or you had to rent a tool so while 
you know, the company sold you the tool is renting you the tool. There's no incentive for them to get the tool up and running in any kind of timely manner because they're making right. money on rental. Right. We always have the incentive to get the, the wrench up and running. And, and it's something we continue to this day. If, if, if a tool breaks for any reason, all we need to do is uh, get a phone call. We provide a loaner tool. Then we work on uh, fixing or replacing um, and then get that back get our tool back. So, you know, again, you mentioned the expense of having uh, a tool down. The most expensive thing, of course, is downtime. And, and we, we work hard to mitigate that. I love the fact that, you know, certainly, you know, whoever owns the tool after they buy it needs to, uh, needs to foot the bill on uh, wear and tear maintenance and repair. But the fact that you put skin in the game to give them loaners when you're getting their tools back up and running, it does create that right level of alignment with, helping them get back up and running because everyone has the same incentive to get that, um, that torque wrench uh, owners assets back in their hands and producing the way it should. So I, I think that's awesome. Skin in the game and alignment is really key for strong relationships. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, let's talk about applications for a little bit. So, um, you know, we're talking about square drive torque wrenches. We're talking about low profile, uh, uh, torque wrenches or direct fit torque wrenches for what are the kinds of customer applications that you're primarily seeing uh, with with uh, with your client base it's a question I get a lot um, here we always get you know because people don't really understand what we do from the outside whether it's bankers lawyers you know accountants um, you know people that happen to come through the shop for any number of reasons they associate us as an oil and gas company which we don't make oil or gas um, we're an industrial uh, solutions provider, so we work with industry. Um, I can't say that we have a common application because we work from uh, wellheads, service rigs, drilling rigs, uh, to pipelines, midstream operations, gas plants, refineries, power generation, you know, across the board through marine applications, um, telecommunications companies. There, There is no you know, there is no common. I mean, obviously here in Alberta, we have our big industries revolve around energy. Um, and, you know, our, our big um, and frequent users now are, are typically wellhead, uh, wellhead BOP companies, um, you know, uh, contractors, you know, companies like Innovator who go out into the field and need to use tools. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, we have no idea what our wrenches are used for because, you know, they go to a company like Innovator where we don't necessarily know what's going on unless, you know, they get into a, a bind to say, like, we don't know how to react this. We need a custom boot. We need a custom arm or, you know, something like that. So, um, you know, without, without sounding, um, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound arrogant at all. A lot of times we're getting, you know, to the point that we're too big to know what, what happens on a daily basis. Right. I love knowing what's going on and I would prefer to get, you know, a thousand emails a day of, of people asking questions before they do something incorrect than, you know, getting the phone call afterwards to tell us that our wrench is a piece of garbage and it broke on site. And, you know, now we have all this downtime. Right. So, you know, just as a bolting guy, you're a bolting guy, um, you know, lot, lots of different use cases, but, you know, hydraulic torquing, there are industrial fasteners, uh, critical bolted joints. It could be a piping flange. It could be a pump base. It could be a BOP. It could be structural steel. Um, it's, it's where you have an industrial bolted connection that requires controlled and often significant amounts of torque to tighten those to very specific uh, required bolt loads. 
And that can be many, many, many different types of industrial bolted applications. Um, and, you know, you and I have worked on mining drag lines and, and reactors and, uh, and wellheads and heat exchangers and uh, wherever there is a bolt and a nut and it needs tightened, uh, you know, that's where you come in, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the misconception is that everything we do is oil or because of our affiliation with, you know, some of our sponsorships and racing affiliations that we provide the tools to tighten the wheel nuts. We don't, you know, we offer a calibration program to our friends in the NASCAR Pinty series. So right. when the Western swing comes through Alberta and uh, the, the teams have their torque tools, we'll pick them up and calibrate them for them and give them back before the next race. But yeah, I mean, it's literally anything to do with a threaded fastener. Um, you know, we get into some, some things, you know, we still distribute some products so we can tighten like a watch screw uh, down to three inch ounces of torque up to the biggest fastener. I mean, our, our specialty is in the heavier side of things than the smaller side of things. Um, but we still have mechanical torque wrenches on the shelf that, you know, go into uh, tire shops and we still have, um, you know, some larger mechanical wrenches with multipliers for people who are happier doing things by hand than they are by power. So it's not for us to say what the best kind of tool is. We have a number of solutions at various prices that work at various speeds, and then it becomes up to the customer to decide what's best for them. Right. I'm going to pivot a little bit, and um, and you mentioned NASCAR, and you've sort of alluded to your uh, your your passion for racing. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you're doing in that space? I know it's not directly related to Cantork, but you are a sponsor in that area. So just and I haven't talked to you about what you're doing with racing for a couple of years now. So you know, give everyone a little bit of a spiel on that, real quick. So. I've always been a fan of racing. I, I started watching racing as a kid. Um, nobody in my family knew anything about racing. You know, nobody around me knew anything about racing. But I distinctly remember as a single-digit age watching both the Daytona 500 and Indy 500, which were the only two races that we would get on TV. And I'm, I'm sure my parents wanted to have me institutionalized because why would you want to watch cars driving around in circles? But there was something about it that just captivated me from the first time I saw it. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, through my, my in-laws, they were drag racers and they started bringing me to the track as, as, um, as we started dating. Um, so I was, you know, I was a really eager, uh, but very uneducated observer that wanted to help, but I didn't really have any mechanical aptitude to do anything more than, you know, put wax on a rag and, and shine down the dragster. Um, but as my, my racing, uh, aptitude you know, uh, diversified, I really started to, um, you know, get, get really interested in NASCAR. And I really got interested in open wheel racing, which in the time was uh, cart or champ car, IndyCar and formula one. And I would, I would go out of my way uh, to watch as many races as I could, you know, start to finish the pre-race shows, the, um, you know, the between the races shows. Um, by the time I, I didn't actually get into a race car and operate, um, you know, operate anything until I bought my first go-kart, uh, which looking back at some pictures the other day was, um, about 12 years ago. Uh, so we started racing go-karts, um, in, in Fort Saskatchewan at a track called Stratatech. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I got involved in sponsorship. So my, my first outside my family sponsorship was with a, a gentleman named James Van Domsler. Um, they ran in what was called Cascar, which is now uh, what we call the NASCAR Pinty series, um, you know, stock car racing, basically. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, we did a, you know, a, a small sponsorship with them um, around the Edmonton race, which ran during the Indy. And then eventually through that, we got introduced to, um, you know, Alex Tagliani, who I became a sponsor of his when, um, when he was still running IndyCar. And, you know, Alex and I formed a really good uh, friendship that, um, you know, as of now, you know, we're still, we still show up as a sponsor on their car, but that's not really what I do anymore. Um, I've, I've actually moved into the role of spotter for Alex. So, you know, for people who don't know, spotting is, you know, the, the guy who stands up on the top of the racetrack and talks to the driver. Um, in a stock car, you can't see, um, you know, basically outside of, you know, what your visor allows. You've got a mirror that'll give you a little bit, but you're so restrained and your helmet is actually affixed to what's called a Hans device or, you know, any of the other head and neck support that you can only turn your head about 15 degrees either direction. So you can't, as you're trying to make a move, you've got a car in front of you, you want to pull out to the outside. You can't like put on your signal light, take a leisurely shoulder check and pull out. You need the spotter to tell you whether you're clear or not. So that's what I'll be doing with Alex at all the races in NASCAR this year. Um, but I'm still very actively uh, working as a driver. I've, I've uh, this winter, I, I took on a new challenge. I've got a new go-kart, which is called a shifter cart. Um, and I've been running in the uh, Challenge of the Americas series. So I've done two races already in uh, Tucson and in uh, Fontana last weekend. And I'm getting ready to uh, do the last of the series in uh, Sonoma here at the end of the month. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been brutal to try and learn how to drive this cart. Even you know, with 12 years of experience running at a moderately high level of club racing i'm i'm back to beyond a raw 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 rookie i have no idea what i'm doing in this cart it is more physical and more busy than than i can put into words and uh you're not 22 anymore <laughs> uh, hell no i am not um, which is why you know i did when i did the first race in tucson i got a decent idea what i was up against and i i'd been training through the winter um, but I, I felt what was wrong. I felt where I needed to improve. And I, there were 18 days that I was home from the race in Tucson until Fontana. I was in the gym 14 days out of 18. Since I've been back, I've done five out of seven workouts. When I get to the hotel tonight in, uh, in Vancouver, um, I'm basically going straight to the treadmill, um, just to make sure that I have enough cardio and enough strength, um, so that, you know, physical limitations are not going to be what hold me back. Um, right. I've set up test days and yeah, I, I, I have no, no uh, delusions of being competitive at this last race, but I, I closed the gap um, from getting lapped um, in all the finals in Tucson to staying on the lead lap in uh, Fontana. This, I, I believe at, at Sonoma with some specialized coaching that I've got lined up, I think I'll be able to stay with the pack. Although again, I'm not, I don't have any delusions to be competitive, but I'm really trying to do like spring training so that when our club season starts, I'm, I'm really ready to go. Right on. And uh, with your work with, uh, on the NASCAR side with Alex, how many uh, races is he racing and how many are you involved in? I'll be at every race um, pending a major conflict with work. Uh, so we compete in, I think it's 13 races this year. Um, there's a double header in Saskatoon um, in July. So we do two races in one night. Uh, we race in four provinces now. So uh, the majority of our racing is going to happen in Ontario. Uh, we do, I believe, three races in Quebec, uh, two in the, the double header in, in Saskatoon. And then we race in Wetaskiwin uh, just outside of Edmonton. 
Cool. Well, I won't chase you around the country, but let me know when the Wetaska one one is, and I'll. Uh, I haven't been to a race with you since uh, you were sponsoring uh, during the Indy, I think, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's a different experience, but um, it what's what's really cool about the track in Wetaskiwin is it's only a quarter mile. It's a very very small oval, and we put you know up to I think we've had up to twenty four cars on the track on on a quarter mile oval. So there is no break for those drivers at all. Um, but if you're in the worst seat, the quote unquote worst seat at the very highest part in the farthest point away, you're still on top of the action. Like there isn't right. a bad seat. <laughs> the drivers are super accessible in the Pinty series. So there's a, like an hour long autograph session. You can meet every driver, get your autograph. There's, you know, it's, it's a really cool program. It's, it's, um, you know, definitely smaller scale than what Indy was, but Indy was not accessible. You know, yeah. unless you really knew someone or you were a really big sponsor, you can't get to those guys. Where where our series now is, uh, it's really about the fan experience. Nice, nice. So um, let, back to torquing now. Let's pivot back away from racing and uh, and get back to your, your 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 away from your passion and back to your uh, you know what pays for the passion. <laughs> and, they're all passions, but you know some of them. You know, you, you know, you need to pay for it somehow, right? Um, uh, what's the what are the economic conditions? And I, I just want to talk about you know why torquing, why customers should really customers who aren't using that technology should really pivot in that direction. Um, and it's more really more a justification around uh, one around the 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 concept of technical bolting in general, and then two pivot a little bit and talk about your uh, your method and your technology, particularly around maintenance and, and what that looks like, uh, your methodology there in, in keeping people running, besides the loaner piece, but the, the way that you've designed the tools to, uh, to, keep, to keep this as a really good ROI for customers. Well, I mean, the first thing is, um, you know, I, I – Almost everything I've learned in business came from my father-in-law. You know, one or two things I've picked up on my own, and I've had a number of really good people around me uh, since I happened to, to you know, accidentally um, get, get hooked into this industry. Um, but he's got an expression that says, if you don't have the time to do things right, what makes you think you have the time to do things twice? And that's a lot of what our, our world is about. You know, historically... Hydraulic wrenches didn't exist, you know, uh, tensioners didn't exist. Even when you and I started, you know, as, as kids, we had these, these god-awful, you know, all-steel, 5,000 PSI, you know, boat anchors um, that were, you know, slow and heavy and, you know, prone to failure, but they were still better than what came before, which was a hammer wrench or an impact wrench and a, and a 20-pound sledgehammer. Um, so, you know, a lot of our, a lot of technology and a lot of innovation has happened, you know, over the, the 25 years that, that, you know, we've been around, you know, and I, I, I have to recognize the developments of, of, you know, our counterparts, you know, especially, uh, companies like high torque, um, while they're our, our big competitor, um, we can't, we can't ignore their contributions and, and, you know, companies like that figured out how to move away from, all steel construction and how to start enclosing components to make things a little bit safer. Um, then started working with more exotic materials, um, getting into things like aluminum and titanium and, you know, some of the exotic um, alloys and exotic steels. 
which has helped reduce the weight of the wrenches, but you know there there have been increases to speed. You know, moving from five thousand psi pumps to ten thousand psi pumps that was a that was a major game changer way back in the day. Um, but you know, our philosophy is pretty simple that there's there's a lot of um, you know, a lot of companies kind of focus on gimmick and they focus on marketing where our focus is, is the exact opposite. We're working on the user experience. So we want somebody to grab our tool. First of all, we want it to feel good in somebody's hand. Um, it's something that, that isn't really tangible until you do it. And even when you do it, you don't necessarily know what it is that you like about the wrench, but you just know you like it by looking at it. Um, we've simplified the design of the tool um, in, in reality now internally in our hydraulic uh, component. Um, it's, it's a housing and a piston with uh, three seals and, and that's all there is to it. Um, until, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to make this a commercial for our company, but until we got to our latest design, um, it, was, it was almost unthinkable for a customer to be able to take a wrench apart or put it back together again, because it, you know, there's, there's strange seals inside or there's springs or there's, you know, other, you know, other mechanisms inside. We don't have that. You can take our tool apart with a pin punch, which is required to uh, drive out a split pin that holds our sliders. Um, a combination wrench will take the end plug out and a little punch and a, and a hammer knocks the piston out and that's it. Um, so the maintenance is very straightforward. Um, you know, seals are going to fail, um, you know, but other than that, there's not a lot else that can really go wrong anymore. Um, so, you know, in, in the, the last generation of tool, I mean, we've seen speed increases of between 30 to 50%. You know, the wrench itself doesn't actually do anything. The wrench is really, uh, the wrench's speed is, is a function of the pump flow and how effectively we can get oil in and out of the wrench. And more importantly, how the oil comes out of the wrench than goes into the wrench. Uh, that was a major focal point for me. Um, but yeah, again, it used to take about 20 minutes to 30 minutes to assemble a wrench. In that same amount of time now, the, the most I've done is 20 wrenches in 30 minutes as I do them in a production line. And, and yes, I still get my hands dirty and I still put the tools together as we develop the, the assembly procedures. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, where, where we're at right now with our stuff is, is, um, is a light year ahead of where we started. Um, it's up to customers to decide if, if our stuff is any better though. Right. You know, you, you said a couple things there that made me uh, nostalgic. Uh, I, I had totally forgotten about 5,000 PSI pumps, but I remember having lots of those and yeah. how I always want to, man, if I just had another 2,000 PSI, I could get this, you know, this flange open. Um, and and you, you have a crow's head CQ wrench, you know, where we were only able to turn half a flat Per yeah. stroke and have to take essentially a hammer wrench that could weigh 60 pounds, physically take it off, reposition it, put it back on, and then have exposed hydraulics like the, the actuator had to manually be placed. If, if I tell, you know, I mean, my son actually works here, you know, uh, you've got, you know, at least in the past, you've had your son involved in the business. Yeah. If I show the kids in this office how we had to do it, they would think we were crazy. And it was a lot better than what we had before that. Yeah, I mean the 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 CQ wrench that you mentioned just for our listeners was effectively a hydraulically pushed hammer wrench. 
And we were trying to, to uh, move those. Uh, we had to calculate the torque based on pump pressure and fulcrum length of the wrench. Um, and, and we were moving, you know, a, a degree of a turn with each stroke of that tool. There was no ratcheting mechanism. I, I remember, um, and these things weighed a lot, uh, but I remember, you know, just looking forward to just getting a basic steel-bodied ratcheting square drive because it was just going to drive productivity so much. Interestingly, you know, you're talking about 25 years ago. I, I just released my first book, and, uh, and it's called The Turnaround Optimizer Process, uh, and it just talks about how to how to, an eight-step process to plan and optimize execution on turnarounds. Bolting is one part of that. Um, but I, I talk about in that book how, you know, my first shutdown that I ran was uh, at a local refinery. Um, and uh, in those days, I managed 54 bolted connections on the entire facility. Uh, you know, today, some, you know, major operators have very, I would say, sophisticated uh, bolting specifications, and they're ma and they're managing the bolting on tens of thousands of bolted connections at their facility. But 25 years ago, it was really critical. You know what they they deemed at that time to be high pressure, high temperature reactors and and heat exchangers. And and the reason was the technology, the bolting technology at the time wasn't. It was it was a it was great at accomplishing the bolt loads needed to. To keep the to seal those joints, but it wasn't super productive. <laughs> well, and it wasn't it wasn't accepted. It was new, and people were reluctant to to try that. You know, that's how we broke in was to say, you know, on this critical manway, on this critical reactor, use these tools. You know, at the same time, I mean, I remember those shutdowns where you know we would have an ultrasonic you know extensimeter in a case. And the, the whole package weighed like 30 pounds and it had like a little three and a half inch floppy disk and a dot matrix printer and yep. having to carry that thing up, you know, hundreds of feet to get to the top of a reactor where nowadays, you know, the, the, the equivalent it model, fits in your pocket. now. it will fit in your jeans pocket as it sits. Yep. It'll measure nowadays, you know, the old analog processors, we were limited to about 24 inch. Um, and that was in the full size, you know, SM2. Um, Nowadays, we can use the little version. You know, it's not a lot bigger than an iPhone, uh, and we can measure up to fifty feet with the right, right transducer and the right configuration. So, yeah, I mean, in 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 a relative short amount of time, the the evolution has really come a long way. Talk about how custom outside of um, uh, technical bolting. Like, what what's the traditional method? And I, I would say technical bolting is is now the tradition, but you know. Do you see customers who are not leveraging uh, your technology or, you know, the, the, the generic technology? And, and, and what does that look like? There are a number. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning days, we were working a lot on introducing the technology. We had to spend a lot of time, you know, teaching people about why, you know, a hydraulic wrench or a pneumatic wrench or, you know, any kind of power tool was going to offer savings versus impact wrenches and hammer wrenches. For the most part, that's where our starting point is now. Now, in a lot of cases, we just need to show what makes our tool different from what they've been getting, whether it's a level of service that we can offer, you know, quicker availability, sorry, availability, um, or, or whatever the, the competitive advantage we have is. But, you know, it's, it's scary to walk into some shops where they're still 
um, happy to use hammer wrenches. I mean, you know, and again, if people don't know, it's literally a hunk of steel. It's like a, like a combination wrench, but made out of impact grade material that fits on a nut. And some, one guy holds, one person holds the wrench and another one hits it as hard as they can with a sledgehammer. Um, not any means of, of control, extremely slow and just extremely dangerous. Um, we see it, you know, they're, they're, uh, we have an application that we're working on right now in, in town um, where I, I'd rather not mention the company's names because I don't want to embarrass them, but yep, um, sure. an international company. We got to protect the guilty. <laughs> well, it's not, I mean, if I mention the name, people will know who it is, but it comes down to contractors and, and application of rules. But um, in, in a gearbox, there's this really small 19 millimeter um, Allen head bolt that holds a whole gearbox in place. And the spec says that you're supposed to use a certain level of Loctite. What the operators, the, the original installers have done is take the whole bolt, dip it in a bucket of Loctite, and then install it, which is ridiculous. The procedure says, if you can't get this out with, you know, it, and the, the, the other thing that makes it complicated is it's recessed in a joint 10 inches. So you need to put an extension on, which has a lot of torsion. They had two guys standing on the end of a four foot snipe. And all that was happening was everything was bowing. Everything was bending. Yeah. No movement at all. This is this is a this is an international multi-billion-dollar company that still has this level of uncertainty in their bolting program. Right. The delicate thing is to be able to address the situation without making them feel like a bunch of schmucks or making them feel guilty because something was put together incorrectly. We can come up with solutions for that using a powered tool. In this case, we're going to supply them a battery-operated nut runner with a custom reaction arm so that the the, the load is consistent, even if there's torsion in the extension that we supply, eventually right. we'll overcome that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, these are things that happen every day. No matter how well a joint is designed, somebody will find a way, you know, potentially, I don't want to sound too negative, but, you know, there's always someone that will find a way to make it um, a lot more difficult than what it needs to be. Yeah, th things have gotten a lot better, but, you know, I still see clients who don't understand the difference between bolt load, tension, and torque, and they will make mistakes, particularly with torquing, where they don't understand that uh, how they should calculate the torque based on, you know, whatever frictional forces that are likely to occur. So I had one, uh, one major pipeline company who, um, uh, who had a bolting specification that said that they needed to uh, they needed to torque all of their bolted connections to 50% of yield. Um, okay, so they, they were confusing. They were, they were in, in, in their written specification, they were confusing tensioning with torque. And because of that, 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 that mistake in the way that they were writing it, um, someone had decided to look at the coefficient of friction on whatever the anti-seize they were using and effectively they were calculating the torque at one third of what it should have been. So they, they actually had a contractor and a, and even within their maintenance teams, a culture where they believed hydraulic torquing didn't work because every time they hydraulically torqued to their written spec, it leaked. And then they would use impact wrenches to, to get it to hold a hydro test. And that had nothing to do with hydraulic torquing. It had to do with the wrong specification because someone 
didn't know what they were doing when they were calculating boatload, tension, and torque to actually accomplish what they were trying to do. Um, a really funny story, but they actually paid me. I, I, I gave them that free advice by just looking at their spec, and I told them what they needed to do to change their spec. But, you know, the, you know their engineering department wanted proof, so, you know, they, they paid us uh, a significant amount of time to come do studies with torquing using an ultrasonic extensometer to prove the elongation to show them that what I told them for free was actually happening. Um, but, you know, so we did a whole bunch of studies in their shop and in the field at different boat loads using different, uh, you know, the K factor, the, 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 the frictional factor that's used in, in, in calculating torque and proved to them that, you know, my, my free advice was right. Um, so I guess they paid for my free advice. Um, uh, but there's still a lot of clients out there who make, make some of those mistakes because torquing and tensioning are two different methods to accomplish a bolt load. And if you don't understand their uses and how they're calculated, you can make some pretty simple but catastrophic mistakes in your program. Yeah, I mean, 100%. You know, obviously, I've got torque in my company name. You know, we're yeah. called CanTorque. We make hydraulic wrenches. And I'm, you know, I spend as much time telling people that torque doesn't mean anything as, as you know, anything else. If torque is applied correctly, it can be a very effective way of generating, like of putting things together and, you know, in turn taking them apart. But it's not, there, there's absolutely no way to prove torque is 100% accurate. I mean, it, it just simply isn't because there are so many intangibles that you cannot um, you, you can't determine it's better than impact. It's better than hammer. It, it is even, but it's not really accurate. Um, and that's just, that's just plain truth. Yeah. It's an, it's an indirect method to accomplish what you're actually trying to accomplish, which is a bolt load, which is actually a particular stretch on the bolt that that, that induces a, a stress in the bolt that's appropriate for the joint. And, you know, torque is indirect. And if you calculate the torque wrong, I'm not, I'm not talking about should I use 1,000 or 2,000 foot-pounds. I'm talking about, you know, how you, how you estimate the frictional and torsional forces that are going to happen in your situation that takes into account lubricant, but it takes into account the standard, you know, all the standard conditions that are happening in that bolted joint. Like what you mentioned with your, your, your client who was using snipes and we're getting all sorts of torsion and bending and deflection, all of those things were basically taking a ton of torque and converting it into not enough load to release the Loctite that they had they had put on there. You know, and they might have been applying three times the torque that they thought they were going to need, but they weren't getting any of that torque to convert into the load on the on the fastener to release it. And that's the big the big difference. Yeah, I use analogies because for, for most people, even our experienced users, a couple of things happens. Customers in general are either ashamed or protective to admit when they don't know something. Because if you, you know, if you open yourself up, if you become vulnerable, especially to a salesperson, the natural instinct is that the salesperson will exploit and take advantage. Right. You know, it works the opposite with us that if somebody can tell us that they don't know what they're doing, then we can help explain it. I don't have an agenda to sell a particular thing. I don't, you know, our, our company slogan is problem solved. We are in the business of solving problems. And if we can't solve a problem, we walk away from the order. But yeah. the analogy is that, and we use this quite frequently, 
Tension is distance. So if you want to think about driving your car, I can tell someone, you know, how, how do we get to your house or how do we get to my house? Well, you get on Yellowhead Trail, you head exactly 23 kilometers until you get to Range Road 14 or Range Road 20 or whatever the, the range road is. You turn this direction, you get on this road, and eventually you get to my house. That is precise and that is, that is exactly how you get there. That's tension. If I told somebody to leave Edmonton and drive for 20 minutes and then make a turn, where do you get to in 20 minutes? Well, if you drive really quickly and don't have traffic, shit, you could be, you could be out to Wobman. If you drive really slowly and have a lot of traffic, maybe you don't even get out of the city of Edmonton. That's right. really what the equivalent of torque is because you have too many things like, you know, new studs versus U studs, you know, not just the type, but the amount of lubrication that a person uses, you know, uh, how hot something gets, how much, blah, blah, blah. there's a million terms that, that you can throw at a, at a, you know, at a, at a torque scenario. Um, in general terms, torque will work to, to keep things together. As long as you have the right tooling, use the right procedure, the, the, the load that gets applied to a fastener, in my opinion, is not nearly as important as making sure that every fastener in a joint is loaded at the same level. If all the fasteners are doing their job, if everyone is at the same level, the expansion is going to be uniform and the contraction will be uniform. It's where we have this inconsistency around the, the fasteners where you can really have some problems. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you know, customers not wanting to be vulnerable or, or a salesperson could take advantage of them. Uh, you know, and that's actually why we're doing this show is, is it's education uh, so that customers have another uh, potential customers for for us, for you, for all of our guests have another mechanism to, to learn so that they oh. can actually feel better. Right. Bring them on. We want them yeah. all. Yeah. So um, diving a little bit deeper. Um, Let's talk about safety, uh, productivity, cost-effectiveness. Those are sort of three core deliverables that we always try to, 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 to improve for our clients. So you know, can you just sort of talk about your company and your range of products relative to safety, uh, productivity, and cost-effectiveness um, and what you bring to the market? Uh, absolutely. One of the things in, in our first couple generation wrenches, we had a lot of issues with sealing. So the, the thing that people have to understand is when, when we're talking about these hydraulic systems, whether they're, um, you know, uh, low profile hydraulic wrenches or square drive hydraulic wrenches, most people don't really know what's going on with, with the majority of things. And getting back to what we talked about before, the wrenches that we use today are still nothing more than hydraulically operated hammer wrenches. The, they're, they're glorified for sure. We call them torque. Uh, because we we use a certain you know criteria, we we measure the surface area of our piston. We know how much pressure we put there. We know the force at a distance and can accurately you know convert that into a torque number. Um, when I came up with the the and I say I I, I worked with a number of people when our latest generation wrench uh, came out. One of the the long standing issues that we've seen from a number of manufacturers is uh, rod seal failures. So over time, the seal fails and the wrench will leak. And when it gets to that point, you can often replace it with a single seal, but over time, it just won't seal anymore. And, and I came up with an idea to, to fix that. When, when I started doing testing, you know, I ran the wrench through normal um, operation, you know, connect it, calibrate it, and then do a series of load tests to see what happens to the tool over time. And the wrench performed great. 
But what I wanted to know is what happens when people do things incorrectly. And when, you know, again, customers will not always tell you that they made a mistake. They'll bring the tool in, say it doesn't work, and then I've got to work like Matlock to go backwards or like Quincy to find out what happened. Um, You're aging us there with Matlock and Quincy references. <laughs> I don't watch any real current TV, so <laughs> there's probably, I don't know, CSI, is that a thing anymore? Yeah, Wyatt, do you know what Matlock and Quincy are? Detectives? Yeah. So Basically. You probably know what uh, Law and Order or CSI is, right? Uh, yep, I got that. Well, okay, Quincy so, and Matlock were the 70s and 80s versions of uh, CSI and uh, Law and Order. <laughs> All right. Yeah, they basically take an end result and then have to work backwards to find out what caused it. Yeah. Love it. So Love it. That's what, what I end up doing. So one of the tests I did, and I mean, I did this on a weekend when I was in the shop by myself. I didn't want anyone else around in case something you know went wrong. <clears throat> I expected something to go wrong. Um, so one of the things, you know, with a hydraulic wrench, um, one of the common mistakes that people make is that they either don't fully connect or they just simply don't connect one side of the tool. Depending on what couplers they use, if they're a, you know, a push lock or a screw type, sometimes they don't screw them all the way in or they can loosen off. And if you don't push and fully engage, you lose the connection. If you get your retract connected, but not your advance, really nothing bad can happen. You hit the pressure, you know, you really shouldn't pressurize a disconnected fitting, but for the most part, nothing in the wrench is going to go wrong. If you only connect the advance and don't connect the retract, that's when the world goes sideways because now you're taking, you know, the, the way the tools are built and the, the way that they're uh, designed is so they take pressure on the piston, but not really on the rod. They don't want to take pressure on the front side of the wrench. Right. And what you do in that situation is by, by applying pressure to the back of the piston and having nowhere for that oil to go, you create a massive amount. You multiply that pressure by many times on the front of the tool. You're creating a bunch, you're creating a massive amount of differential pressure that the tool is not designed for. Yeah. And we're talking, you know, sometimes, you know, 10 to 15 times more pressure than what the tools, you know, um, intended for. I did that on purpose because as I was testing the wrench, I couldn't get it to fail. So what I did is I disconnected the retract port. I put a plug on the retract port and I started hammering it and I was hammering it at 10,000 PSI. I would hammer it multiple times and then I would hold the pressure and I'm expecting this thing to let go and it wouldn't. And I got pissed off because I wanted to see where that like, does the housing fail? Does it crack? Does the seal let go? Nothing happened. I took my, my tool to the back shop where I have my tensioning set up and I connected a tensioning pump to my torque wrench just by the advance port. Now, honestly, I ran a real long feed hose and I hid behind a cinder block wall. Which that's is, a lot more, that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure, but there's no, there, there's no kinetic not a lot, energy. Not a lot, there's not a lot of volume, yeah, you're right. No, if, if the tool fails, it's going to bypass, but it's not going to explode. Um, I set up GoPro cameras in my, my test cabinet. So it's, you know, it's plexiglass enclosed. It's, it's, you know, blast resistant. And I sat behind and I watched my pressure gauge. And as my gauge got up to 20,000 PSI, which is double practical operating of the wrench to begin with, and definitely not to be done in any circumstance, I finally saw the pressure start to drop. And I got, I got happy because now I could find out where the weak point was going to be. I get to the wrench and I'm looking at it and the wrench is bone dry. I'm taking a look. There's not, 
There's nothing wrong with the wrench whatsoever. I had to take my GoPro cameras. I ran up to my office. I didn't run. I could probably run now, but that was, you know, a couple of years ago and I wasn't so fond of running. I plugged everything in and what had happened was because I was in such a hurry to test the wrench, I didn't swap any of the couplers over. And because hydraulic wrenches in North America run off of NPT threads, all that happened is once we got to that 20,000 PSI, the taper of the thread just deflected enough that the oil bypassed between our swivel and the coupler. We've, We've hit it out of the park with this tool. Like I know if I put anybody else's tool through that same test, it's going to fail. And we were able to successfully run our tool. So as far as the safety of the wrench goes, I have no, I have no worry at all. Awesome. So uh, on that topic of wrenches and, and pressure, uh, I'm going to touch on a pet peeve of mine, you know, someone who owns uh, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars worth of torque wrenches. Um, Talk about oil and, and basic maintenance. Um, again, I relate everything to other things. You know, you're, you're, first of all, you've got to keep everything clean. It's, it's exactly the same as a car. If you don't wash your car and your body panels start falling off, you can't take it back to the dealership and say there's an issue with this car. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep everything clean. That is... It sounds like a a superficial thing, but it's very practical because whatever you get on the end of a coupler, whatever you get on the end of a hose, whatever you get on the end of your pump, the first place it's going to go is inside the tool. And in the fight of grit and, you know, whether it's aluminum, whether it's steel or whether it's the material of the seal, the grit always works or it always wins. And it's going to groove your cylinder. It's going to cut your piston or it's going to shred a seal. Changing the oil is obviously important, like it is in your car. Um, over time, the, I, I can say without hesitation, hydraulic wrenches are the most abusive thing to oil that I've ever seen. The, what we do with hydraulic wrenches compared to you know, um, lifting cylinders, compared to tensioners, is like there, there's no use in those compared to what we do. We're, we're taking a small volume of, of oil and firing it back and forth every few seconds under extreme pressure. And, you know, in the case of our tool, in most tools, the oil goes through a number of reductions because the, um, the inside diameter of the couplers to the hose is different. We go through either, you know, a uni post, a swivel, a something. There's almost no direct connection where, where that oil stays in one direction. So by changing direction, by changing diameter, we create all kinds of friction you can you know just running a pump at idle you can generate enough heat that you can almost not touch a tool and that's not our specific that's that's hydraulics that's all of them making so the heat is brutal on the oil it will break it down and essentially turn oil to water now when we do that it becomes really resistant to building pressure it doesn't want to work anymore Um, if it gets dirty whatever happens in that reservoir goes through the tool and you know no matter how well we build the inside of the wrench we can make it out of you know torque alloy you know we can come up with a proprietary alloy just for torque wrenches it's still going to groove it's still going to um you know uh engrave um you know either a piston or uh, the the cylinder it's going to chew seals so yeah absolutely without question the, the the similarity though between automotive and torquing is that we can't 
we can't provide an interval. We can't say after this many hours, this is when you need to do it. The only thing that we can add is as needed. Yeah. You've got to have an attention to your stuff and you've got to have a bit of an understanding what your company does and what your application is so that you know every two weeks, maybe that's when you need to do it every two months, every six months. It depends on use and it depends on condition. Yeah. I mean, you know, basically, and, and that's really why I was wanting you to, to talk about is keep everything clean, change the oil often because it's $30 worth of hydraulic oil or a $10,000 wrench. And it amazes me how many people, um, and in, including, you know, uh, I've seen it across the industry, rental equipment, uh, you know, many of my own people, like the, the, the oil is filthy or the equipment is filthy. They, they miss the point that all the grime gets into the wrench and creates all that internal erosion. And, and the, and the minute that you start getting hot oil, it's, it, it is, it is, if the pump is hot, your oil is breaking down and you've, you know, whether that's, you know, every 20 hours, every 50 hours, check the oil. If it ain't clean, change it regularly, often, always, and keep lots of it around and change it often. Because if you don't, you're going to have $10,000 boat anchors. Well, you, you didn't invent the expression, but you were the one that I heard it from first. Tripping over dollars to save nickels. 100%. Yeah. That goes back, you know, 20 plus years. And you're right that, you know, the co whether, whether you've got to send it to a company like ours to do it, we charge $100 an hour for labor. We put the, the oil in. We take the oil out. We dispose of the old oil. But we also crack the res like we don't just dump it and fill it we always crack the reservoir and make sure that it's clean we take a look for you know obvious wear this is what we That's do a, another great point I, it amazes me how many people will dump the oil out and leave a half an inch of grime in the bottom of the of the pump and that all that's doing is instantly making your new oil filthy and and continuing to damage your equipment yeah we've got well with our with our wellhead industry we've got a number of customers who um, initially would use their torque pump to do hydro tests on wellheads. Now, wellheads are often filled with a product called invert. Now, if you ask me what invert does, I can't tell you because I'm not really a wellhead guy. But we would get pumps back with like an inch of this. It's just vile, putrid, evil garbage um, that would end up, you know, displacing all the oil in the pump. And then eventually would cycle through the tool and they couldn't figure out why the wrench was having problems. We take, you know, they finally send us everything back. Okay, well, there's there's an inch of mud in the bottom of your pump. Why, why, well, we use it for hydro tests. Like <laughs> you get a hydro test pump for like two thousand dollars. Why are you using the sixty five hundred dollar pump for that? That's it's, funny. I've never heard of someone using a torque pump for a hydro test. That's an interesting uh you know, I guess people will, uh, will, you know, in our industry, will always improvise, not necessarily in the in the in the best way. It didn't say not to do it, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's not about what to do. It's a, you also got to give the not to do list. Hey, uh, you talked about this a little bit. Uh, uh, this, uh, so I don't want to go too much deep into this, but just tell me a little bit of the story on the R and D path to get you where you are today. Um, just like life, everything has been, uh, I shouldn't say everything because now the mindset's differently, but how we really did all of our development was through failure. 
Uh, we find a problem with a housing where, you know, when we switch from steel housings, I'll go back even further. Steel housings for us, steel elements in torque wrenches are a perpetual nightmare for us. Um, we knew really what materials to use. We knew what certain components need to be made out of. What we didn't know was heat treating procedures. And heat treating is the bane of my existence. Heat treating is, <laughs> is beyond complicated because you can't just say, I need this piece of carbon steel heat treated to 35 Rockwell. There's a whole, like, Anybody can get to 35 Rockwell. It's the ramp-up rate. It's the soak rate. It's the cooling period. It, it's uh, everything. It's the, it's the, you know, to get to a certain hardness. But the, It's know, not even the hardness. Do you want it case-hardened? Do you want it through-hardened? Do you want right. this characteristic? Do you want you know, to maintain ductility? Do you want no? Like, it, is, it never stops. We were fortunate that, you know, through our machine partner, um, they have a customer that has spent well in excess of $1.5 million in their heat treat program. And they, they analyzed something like, I don't know what it was like upwards of 50 different materials, like all kinds of grades of steel. And then with each grade of steel went through umpteen different heat treat procedures. And we had a number of problems, especially when we were doing our first offshore wind uh, program. That is one of the most brutal applications of a hydraulic wrench um, that you can come up with because we're taking tools right to their limit and need to perform um, like 10 hours out of a day or in a 24 hour day, they'll run 20 hours um, trying to come up with something that will, will with, withstand that kind of load is beyond challenging, but you know, I digress trying to maintain tolerances in a steel housing for a low profile tool, you know, because what happens is the procedure is that you take it in, <clears throat> It's raw state, which is already hard. You do the, the, the majority of the machining, what we call soft turning. It has to go out for heat treating, but heat treating deforms the material. There's always yep. going to be a twist, a bend, an expansion, a contraction. And then we have to hard turn it. After we hard turn it, then we still have to maintain that, that, um, the, the tolerances. And it was impossible. I, I shouldn't say it was impossible, but it was just really, really complicated. It took a long time. And we had to leave so much extra material to withstand the, the heat treat load. When we switched everything to aluminum, all that went away. And, you know, we're able to, you know, essentially, if we didn't have to, uh, we really don't. But if we didn't take the time to anodize, we could start with a block of aluminum, machine it, and have a finished product that performs, you know, far better than, than our, our steel counterpart. Right. Um, that was really, um, you know, the majority of our R&D to get to where we are now. Now everything is about trying to find little tricks or little improvements. You know, like I said, we've worked a lot on reducing weight. We've worked a lot on increasing speed. And, and you know, the test that, that I, I give is we take your wrench of any brand of any make with your pump, nothing, nothing that we did, nothing trick. We run your wrench, we take it off, we put on my wrench on the same pump and we'll show that there's a speed difference. Um, now our next, like we're kind of done with our current generation of wrenches. Um, Square Drive and the low profile are, are done where they're at. Um, all the new ideas I have are going to go into, you know, a completely unique, completely new tool, which I'm not even going to put a timeline on because knowing what the problems can be, 
I don't even want to, I don't even want to guess. Well, that was actually my next question. And I'm not sure how much of your ideas or where you're going, you, you can share without uh, disclosing uh, where you're going, but you know, where do you see taking your, your product line? What's the future? We're going to keep working on the same things. Um, the, the new generation wrenches, again, they're all theoretical right now, but I have a number of conversations every week with, with my main engineer and the engineering team, just kind of jotting down the thoughts as I have them, looking at what, um, where our issues are, where we can make things better. I mean, it, the, the simple thing is, or the, 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 the philosophy remains the same, is that we want to make wrenches easier to use and we want to make them last longer. Whatever we can do, there's a couple of stress points that we have in the tools that I don't like. And they're, they're, for lack of a better term, they're inherited. We started with a base design and we've kind of moved in a different direction. But there's, there's a lot of things that I want to start doing with ratchets. There's a lot of things I want to start doing with the drive mechanisms and then how the tools fit together. Um, without giving away too much, um, that's really what we're going to be doing. We're still going to have to maintain our, our original uh, inventory. We're going to have to, you know, service the tools that we're still selling for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going forward, yeah, the new stuff is just, it's, it's going to be unlike anything that's ever been made. But from, uh, you know, when we're talking about safety, productivity, cost effectiveness, lighter weight is, is safer, you know, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, from a, from a user experience and reliability is both productivity and cost effectiveness. So those two sort of core principles uh, in terms of where you're going, how that that might take ten different versions over time, but it, it it's it's the kinds of things that clients are going to want, right? Well, I mean, as an example, we had an issue with with you guys, and it's not in like an like we didn't have a problem with Innovator, but we had a problem present itself with a tool that you guys were using that led, you know, over time, you know, I was actually thinking of you guys when I said that, you know, customers want answers kind of immediately and where we couldn't really give the answer that was satisfactory it actually led to a complete you know, design change of the wrench and how it fits with, or the, the actuator and how it fits with the wrench. And we, you know, that became a reality because of, of our experience with Innovator. I often say to my team, you know, um, it isn't experience and 20 years of doing it that makes, that brings value. And, you know, because if you have 20 years of success, you really didn't learn anything, but I, I, you know, wisdom and value, as you said earlier, comes from I learned. I've learned a lot in 20 years from a lot of failures, and uh, I'm glad that I've been able to help you identify a few of those. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if if that, you know, the 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 flip side of that is 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 I've made enough mistakes that I should probably know everything by now. But um, it's it seems like you know uh, the the. The more we learn, the more we understand that we don't know, which, you know, kind of stealing from Confucius. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're pretty excited about the future. I'm really happy that, you know, our production is now to the point. It's predictable. We know what we're doing. We know how to make a side plate. We know how to make a ratchet, a drive plate. We know how to make them better. Um, you know, operationally, we've we've improved um, you know, honestly, we've got to work on our documentation a little bit better. That's my, like, administration is not my forte. I would rather, you know, come up with an idea, get it implemented, and get it into the machine shop than worry about how our operation manual uh, looks. But um, it's it's all important. And, and as we do more business outside of Canada, you know, we have informal business, you know, uh, in Canada and, and in the U.S. We're not really worried so much about training. We want to know that a person can be proficient. Um, once we start doing business in, in Europe, um, in the Middle East, 
the um, the documentation and the certification and the trade it's it's unbelievably difficult yeah. um, and it's also it's also very uh, conflicting because in one method they're saying we need this this end result okay well you need to use this we can't use that why because it's not in the spec but yeah. it's going to do exactly what you want it to do we're going to you know decrease your installation time we're going to increase you know productivity we're going to you know do all these things. Nope, we can't do that. Yeah, we we had a we had an interesting situation where um, our set of um, isolation and test tools, um, and we're partnered with a European engineering firm, and we we rep- we, we have exclusivity for for their range of tools in all of Canada and the U.S. Um, in Europe, um, they had another uh, partner who worked with an international oil and gas company and got their. The, the distributor's name listed as an approved uh, an approved product for use of test plugs, um, and because it was it was the distributor's name and not the manufacturer's name, we had to go through all of the documentation process and engineering review locally with them so that uh, the same tool could get approved because you know th- th- they have due diligence to do in terms of in terms of documentation. What I will say about all those kinds of things, what I've learned and my, my uh, my own personal coach, Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach, has a philosophy that's really helped me when it comes, because I'm not a documentation guy. I, I score four out of 10 on, uh, on the Kobe profile for, for, for liking to do that kind of stuff, which means I like someone else to do it. Um, it's, uh, Dan Sullivan says, uh, who, not how, my friend, who, not how. Uh, you need to find the who to take care of that. <clears throat> for sure. The problem is I still have to tell the who what to do. And yep. I still have to approve the way it looks because, you know, if, if I flip my camera around for people who've never been in the office here, we have a, we have a very unique presentation and, and I won't say anything more than it's unique. Some people walk into my office and they love it. And some people walk into the office and they hate it, which is fine in both cases. We don't ever uh, want to look like somebody else. Your office has personality. I can say that. <laughs> we don't um, be confused with anybody else we you know again people are either going to like us or they're going to hate us but i don't ever want to be compared to somebody some other company well we got about uh 15 or 20 more minutes before you've got to uh, make your way to the airport i want to just pivot now and just uh dig into frequently asked questions uh that you get from uh from from customers on a regular basis, you know the the top ten kinds of things that people are normally asking, and that way we get that out there and uh, they get the answers before they need to ask. Um, so you know, what's the price? Well, which is always a which is always a great question. You know, if for just my personal uh, belief is if that's the lead question that we get, it's not somebody that we want to deal with. Right. Um, you know, because the price doesn't, it doesn't encapsulate the things that you were talking about. It doesn't encapsulate, is the tool safe? Does it fit? Will it fit my application? How do you support it when it fails? And we're probably the only company that advertises the fact that the tool will fail at some point. Mm-hmm. It, like you said, a lot of the, the wrench manufacturers tell you that they made an indestructible tool. We try and, you know, we try and get across all these things before and we ask a lot of questions of our customers um, you know including what their budget is because if they want to spend a thousand dollars on a thing that we can't sell for less than seven thousand dollars I'm happy to answer questions but we're not going to come to a resolution for you right you know I um, 
I mentioned my uh, my turnaround optimizer book. I've, I've actually got my second book that I'm I just got back from the editors, uh, and it's called the Industrial Sales Solution. The first chapter in my book is is a uh, is a, a tool called the Value Pyramid, and the bottom of the pyramid, it, which is the lowest form of com- commoditization, is is level one is called you know what's the product, what's the product, and what's the price, and um, you know. And so that can be that can be two thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars. If you measure on that, neither neither you as a, as the supplier or the solution, but neither the but the customer isn't actually getting value. It's called the value pyramid for a reason because the bottom of the pyramid is how much. The second level on the pyramid is called um, is called customer experience, and that's when you start to go, you start to feel like how you do business, how you guys take care of customers, how you test. Um, you know, the way that you deal with, with uh, loaners when something fails, you know, that experience piece has nothing to do with the manufacturing price. It has to do with, it starts to get more into the relationship and trust. Um, the next level of the value pyramid is really outcomes. Like what can you expect to accomplish when you're working with Cantork, when you're working with Innovator, and you're working with their products and services. And outcomes is, you know, a, a much higher level of, of, of value. And then beyond that, you're really you know, you get into what I call the top of the pyramid, you know, which is sort of the gold area, which is really being a strategic partner and bringing insight and help and helping customers accomplish things that is different. And I think when it comes to price, you've got to calculate in those different levels of value. And, you know, you know, I, I've got a particular, and, and Wyatt is just producing a video series, how we've tested a whole range of test tools isolation and, and test plug tools, we found, you know, there are cheaper tools, much cheaper tools on the market that most of the industry, you know, has sort of spread out. They've got a whole bunch of distributors. And we found that those tools can accomplish the pressures that customers want to want to, um, want to to achieve. They take four, five, six, ten times longer to actually get up the pressure and use them. And so if you're going to save 20% on the rental price or the purchase price of that test plug or that torque wrench, and it takes you four times longer to get the job done, and it might not even get it done, then are you really getting any value? Uh, you know, and as you mentioned with with your father-in-law, uh, Don Campbell, which is, you know, wisdom uh, from, a, from a very experienced entrepreneur, you know, is it worth doing it wrong? Can you afford to do it twice? And, you know, I think that's that's the value piece when it comes to pricing. You've really got to dig in and understand from an outcome standpoint, what are you trying to accomplish as a customer? What is the customer experience you're going to have? What kind of partnership are you going to have with that supplier? And ultimately, they've got a really strong, well-designed tool that's going to add to that 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 whole layer of things. I think that that's really how people need to think about it. You know, and we're going to get listeners who go, "Yeah, but what's the price?" And and the, the conversation conversation still needs to come back to, you know, what are you trying to get done? Well, we see this, you know, getting back to what we talked about earlier, it come, there's a lot of it that comes down to trust, but there's a there's a separate part that comes down to how a company's structured. And, you know, you see it probably as much as we do that there there are departments now within larger companies that are set up purely for cost reduction. Mm-hmm. They want to approach suppliers and negotiate lower prices, which is fine. I mean, you know, economic climate in a lot of industries is really tight right now. The problem I have with that is what are you sacrificing with price when it comes to overall value? Because we can 
you know, we can always offer a cheaper thing, but we can't support it the same way. We can't offer that same, um, that same safety net. Right. But the, the trust piece is that I can say all the things that you just said to a customer, and I can tell them that we'll do that. But until you're in that situation, you, you, don't, you, you don't have that urgency to know like, okay, when this thing breaks, what am I going to do? And we hear it a lot. I mean, one of our power companies, um, we weren't in a panic with them. We helped them out by, you know, answering. It was actually during one of my daughter's birthdays. I got a phone call. I had to leave the birthday party to come in, load a tool up, and then go to the to the power plant. And, and the guy told me, he's like, you know, that while this is an unexpected outage, and right now this generator is costing us $125,000 an hour. Mm-hmm. Like, Wow. Okay, cool. So will you guys be up and running here? Oh, yeah, we're going to be up and running, you know, X number of hours, you know, earlier than what we thought. And that was that was awesome. We also get it where, you know, companies don't plan properly. They don't have supplementary things. Again, these are mechanical pieces and they can fail from time to time. If your job is so critical, you have one thing that you can't live without it, you better have another thing. Like that's why we have two lungs and two kidneys and you know all these fingers and stuff like that so that we have spares when we need them. It's important that customers know that. We try and be upfront, but what ends up happening in a lot of cases is they think we're trying to oversell them or or we're trying to fatten up or pad a PO. Mm -hmm. And then they go somewhere else, which can be the best thing that happens for us because then over time, we told them what to expect when things go wrong. Other companies who are more, you know, order driven than they are solution driven, they'll get, they'll, they'll take that order or they'll offer a big discount because that's what the customer said that they wanted, but it's not really what they needed. And over time, whether it's 12 months, you know, 36 months, five years, whatever it is, we end up with that customer back. And it's, you know, it's playing that long game where you just have to be patient, you know, when, when we were kids, man, I wanted every damn order that was out there. I wanted to be the biggest guy. I wanted 100% and anything less than that was, was insufficient. Now, I would rather, if, if we had the choice of 1,000 generalized customers or 100 really loyal, I would take the 100 all day long because I know that we can keep providing value and we can keep you know, providing solutions to these yeah, guys. It, it, it's, playing, it's playing the long game with clients that you have a relationship with. You know, uh, that whole idea that you said that customers don't plan, I, I wrote about this and because our, our, our optimizer process really addresses this. And, you know, most customers plan the general contractor activity that somewhere in there says they need a torque wrench, but they don't necessarily plan the granular nature to, to really identify the specific assets and the specific skills relative to bolting or plugs or, or fill machining or whatever it is. So what ends up happening is they come to you or they come to me and they either want bolting, bolting services or they want bolting equipment and they pick a wrench. And then it becomes, if, it, if something goes wrong, they have no redundancy plan. So they, you know, we call it in, I think it's step four in our process, it's called optimize and integrate, which, which has to address, you know, 30 or 40% found work activities and redundancies and assets, because you can't afford to not have that tool and have a facility down that's costing you several million dollars a day. All of a sudden, the value of the torque wrench disappears because I just want four and I want them now and I wanted them yesterday. Um, and so that's, but, but that, that whole idea of integrating and really planning redundancies 
based on the criticality and probability of what happens if your one tool that you're wanting to bring is it, it, it really cr creates a critical path issue. Yeah, in our email signature, um, and I don't actually have it. Maybe I, I probably should, but I don't. I don't generate quotes, and I don't do a lot of that stuff anymore. But right in our email signature. We got in bold writing. If your project is critical, we suggest additional models. Should anything happen, you know, again, yep. seals can fail, parts can break, people can make mistakes. You know, even if you're in Fort McMurray and we're in Edmonton, best case scenario, if you've got a, a hotshot driver on our block, it's four and a half hours without us doing paperwork prep and all the rest of it. That is lost time simply because you didn't. You didn't have any safety yeah. net, and and we by get the time you get that to the work face, that's eight to twelve hours, best case scenario. Yeah, plus you're paying a hotshot driver. You know, it's it's going to cost you two grand to get a thing up to site. It's going to cost you know all this downtime, and then it's going to take a number of phone calls where people use a lot of words that we're trying to avoid in this podcast to say like, "Well, your your wrench failed." Well. Yeah, sometimes they do. For the most part, they don't. And it's it's the trade-off that we get. And, and it's funny because we have a particular industry that when the price of oil goes down, they send out a form letter saying, we know that the downturn of oil is hitting everyone and we're asking all of our suppliers for a 10 to 15% concession. Mm -hmm. And I get to my computer and I type up a response letter and I said, I'm more than happy, even though our tools are not dependent on the price of oil, I'm happy to offer you the concession. If you let me know where the threshold is that I can add that pricing back on when oil gets, you know, to a, to a proper level. Yep. We don't do that. We don't, if you need it, it costs the same amount as when you don't. If you call yep. me on Christmas day at two o'clock in the afternoon, the price of our tool is the same. Now, it's probably going to cost us a little bit more to come in to prep it for you, but we're not going to take a $5,000 wrench and charge $20,000 for it because you have to have it. We can, we can exploit that and, 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 and profiteer. Right. We, don't, we don't play one or the other. It's, it's funny that you know, in our power generation customer's case, we got them up and running. Let's just say 10 hours earlier. That's $1.125 million. I didn't get a bonus check for that. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we often, when we do optimize a turnaround, we'll do it with half the people and it'll be 40% less than the traditional method. And I haven't been able to negotiate a contract yet where they give me half of those savings. <laughs> uh, maybe that's our new strategy. I'm not sure how well that will go. I think that would, I think what customers call that lump sum jobs, I think is what they call that. Um, we're equipment guys, not service guys. So we're, yeah. we're not in that world. What's uh, so? We got a few more minutes. Talk about your availability. What? Uh, how many? How many tools do you have, and how fast can people get them? Uh, what are you looking for? I don't have that answer. Okay. Well, tell right, me a story. Right now, we've got uh, the availability isn't as good as what I'd like it to be, but it's it's bigger than what anybody else has, at least in Canada right now. Um, in our low profile models, we've got at least 25 and in most cases over 50 of each size actuator um, up to our 8,000 foot pound, which is our, our you know, common size tool. Um, over that, we've got, um, I'd say a dozen of our 20,000 foot pound low profile. We've got 
um, half a dozen each of our 36,000 and 45,000 foot-pound actuators. Um, wrenches in the next week, we're going to have a delivery of just over 200 uh, wrenches for our 4,000 foot-pound tool. And then we start um, you know, the, the runs on our, on our other wrenches. Uh, That's square drive tools, we've got a number of those as well. That's a lot of torque. <laughs> Can't sell um, the shelf. I heard somebody else say that a long time ago too. <laughs> uh, field crews, do you offer service? No, absolutely not. We do not compete with our customers. Um, it was a conscious decision I made uh, day one. You know, obviously our background is is you know field technicians. Um, the the tendency is to get the request. You know, with the exception of a of a custom project. Um, that I did for a friend, um, you know, whatever that was six weeks ago, it wasn't, it wasn't field use per se. Um, it was just, you know, help a buddy out. Um, and it was a pro bono project. Um, yeah. I, I go out to analyze projects from time to time, but no, we do not do any field service whatsoever. So just, just for the audience, I do offer field service at Innovator. So that's who you can call. Um, uh <laughs> what about uh, certif uh, certificate training, like certification training, anything like that? To, uh, no, to um, we're not accredited in any way, shape, or form. We will always be more than happy to teach people how to use our wrenches, how to maintain them, set them up, um, you know, everything around our tool. But we're not... Um, you know, we're not a, a, an institution like Nate where, you know, there's a, there's a world of difference between how you operate a torque tool or a, a tensioner and becoming a pipe fitter or a millwright or a boilermaker. That's something that, you know, customers should already know how to use or know how to, you know, uh, be, be certified in that. Uh, we can definitely uh, do all the extra stuff. Yeah, you know, and, and there's, there's a whole range of organizations across. So for customers or audience who are, are listening, you know, in North America, there is a bolting accreditation and it's uh, accrediting uh, bolting technicians to um, the ASME PCC1 bolting spec. Um, most of my technicians are, are accredited um, and, and we outsource that. We go to accredited schools to get our people certified. Um, and, you know, it, you know I, I view it as a certification. I don't, I don't deem it, in our training system, we don't deem that to mean competency, it's a training. It doesn't mean that they are competent to be uh, ready to operate on their own yet. So we have a, a, another whole internal process for deeming competency. Um, it's kind of scary though that, you know, you can't operate a forklift with, you know, a forklift is essentially the same principle as driving a car. In, in any plant or any industrial operation, you can't, you know, do something as, as simple as operate a forklift. But almost every organization that we deal with has absolutely no criteria for operating a torque tool or a tensioner that can create a, a hell of a lot of damage in a short amount of time. You know, in, in the North Sea, there's, you know, there's, there, there is industry standardized accreditation for bolting practices and people can't do bolting without that, that, that accreditation that happens in the North Sea. In North America, you know, the ASME committee, you know, has been, has been sponsoring the accreditation for for bolting credentials, but it isn't mandatory. It's uh, it certainly needs to evolve a lot. I mean, the accreditation process is is like what we experienced in the early days of actually introducing the technology to go from hammer inches to impacts to technical bolting. And you know, we got tons of training that was in house training on you know and all the engineering and all the calculations and ultrasonics. 
the accreditation training is really about tool operator training uh, from what I've seen for the most part. Um, we've got a couple more minutes and uh, let's talk about some things customers should ask you. What, uh, what would you love customers to be talking to you about? First, I would love customers to make their first question, what happens when something goes wrong? Like, mm -hmm. It's one thing to be able to buy a thing, but what happens? Because most of the time, the places that our tools end up are critical. Whether they're frequent use or infrequent use, when you need you know, a tool like ours, you got to have it. Um, you know, there's a number of companies that sell similar things, but still, um, to get access when you need it is really key. I wish that was more of a more of a leading question than what is a cost or do you have it on the shelf. Um, you know, I think our support program is is as good as it can be. We're always finding ways to add something or, or tweak something, but it's it's kind of neat. Um, to look now. I mean, I still feel like the the 22 year old kid, you know, working on Athabascan Avenue in Sherwood Park, <laughs> you know, not knowing, you know, my ass from a flange. I didn't know the difference between, you know, um, you know, a stud and a bolt. I didn't know anything about it. I was fortunate that someone, you know, took a chance on me and brought me in, you know, all those years ago. Um, but, you know, I take a look at some of the companies that have popped up and some have spun off from, from, you know, former Cantorque employees and some have spun off from, you know, other people that we, that we used to uh, work with. And more and more, I'm starting to see the things that, you know, that, that we came up with in the early days and things that we've been proponents of um, that now are commonplace. I mean, in the early days, people didn't calibrate torque wrenches. There's no such thing. I mean, I, I heard for years, well, as long as the gauge is calibrated, the wrench is accurate, which is, is total hogwash because wrenches in low profile tools, the, the size of the wrench, the size of the drive plate is the size of the lever. And the further away from the center of the bolt you go, the output's going to change. Actuators change over time. They either become more efficient or less efficient. You know, these are all things that we started doing from, from the early days, going back to about 2003 when we moved into this building. Um, but now everyone's starting to, to emulate. I see a lot of companies try and copy what we do when it comes to product range. And, and you know, um, we don't have a lot of really loyal suppliers. We have a handful, but uh, for the most part, our tools are available through everyone now. You know, um, Tools that nobody would have known about in the early 2000s are now available, you know, even through the big houses like Acklands and Valon. Right. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just part of life. Um, we try and offer a little bit different, um, you know, methodology behind how we, how we supply and how we support. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, as the, it's like any technology. As it became more popular, everyone has their hand in it, but none of them are specialists. And, uh, and so it, it, they are really on the bottom of that value pyramid at providing a product, uh, which is in their catalog, but not necessarily going to have the insight capability testing that you're doing, uh, service, um, uh, skin in the game when it comes to loaners. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other pieces to this because, uh, you're, you know, if you're, you know, there's a big difference between having something that you can sell and being a being focused on a particular area like you are, you know, it's in the name, right? Cantor. Well, we see a lot. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of days going to customers who don't know how to do something. They've got an application. They're not sure. They want to try this thing, but they don't know how to use it. And if, if it's something that we supply, 
then anyone can go in afterwards, see what we did and say, okay, I know how to build that or I can make that thing. Um, but it's, it's, it's very telling when, you know, we've got a particular uh, customer in a particular location. I don't want to, <clears throat> I don't want to badmouth anyone, but they've got a supplier across the road from them. And when I walk in, like, why are we here? Cause you've got, you know, X, Y, Z across the road. Like they don't know what to do. If we gave them the solution, no problem. Then they would try and knock it off and they try and copy it. But, you know, having, you know, over two decades of, of practical and field experience, there's a value to that. And, you know, I don't charge any more um, for the wrench. If it's a $5,000 wrench, it's a $5,000 wrench. And if we need to put a $1,000 accessory on it, then, it's a, then that's what it is. But there's $10,000 of value in knowing how to do it. And that's another, you know, expression that, that Don gave me a long time ago is that it's, you're not, you're not paying a doctor $10,000 for his time. You're paying him $100 for his time and $9,900 because he knows what to do. That's right. That's where the value is. And, and you know, it's, it's quite telling. We'll lose accounts from time to time because somebody comes in with a cheaper thing. But then there's no value there. You got, you got something that, you know, if that's your lead point is to offer something for less money, you don't really have a lot to offer. It's tempting. And sometimes people will, will go down that route. And I, I can't blame them because, you know, if you're talking about a $10,000 thing that somebody wants to sell for $8,000, what do you have to lose? But then you can't get it supported. And, and you know, we've actually had to start going the route of, of doing like development permits and, um, you know, engineering or part of me uh, purchase orders so that when we come up with the solution for something, we're getting paid for that part of it. We'll credit that if we get the order. But if somebody wants to take our solution and hand it over to somebody else, we've already got paid for, for you know, the innovation there. It's, it's a, that was a hard lesson to learn because I wanted to believe if we took care of our customer, they would take care of us. And that's not always the case. Uh, and that's why, uh, you know, you'd rather have those hundred customers that, that are loyal that you work with and, and build long relationships with than the, than the thousand that, um, that are transactional. Right. You know, my, uh, my, I heard a story recently and it was, and, it, and it's a little bit telling it, it involves a hammer and not a hammer wrench. So there's a wealthy businessman driving through a small town, driving a Rolls Royce, and it breaks down as he's trying to get to a very important meeting. And he, he's able to hobble his vehicle into a gas station, into a mechanic shop. And uh, the mechanic says, well, I can help you. And he opens the hood and he, uh, he has a quick look and he listens a little bit. And then he takes out a hammer and he hits the engine in a particular place and the engine fires up. And, uh, and the businessman says, well, how much do I owe you for getting my vehicle going? And the, and the, the mechanic says, $500. And the, uh, the, the businessman says, $500 to hit my engine with a hammer? That's ludicrous. He says, no, it's $5 for the hammer. It's $495 to know where to hit it. Yep. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's the 20, 25 years of, of being a specialist in a particular area. And it has nothing to do with the SKU code on a particular tool. Oh, and I, I mean, you know, I don't know the answer to everything and I don't have the solution to every problem. You wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, to be fair, neither would you. But, you know, a little bit of experience and a little bit of maturity. I've got a great support network with a great engineering firm. So even if I, I can come up with maybe, you know, a great idea, 
but we'll run it past our team and, you know, we'll prove it before we put anything into production. Um, you know, uh, a guy we used to work with a long time ago said, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I've got a lot of intelligent help. And, and, you know, that's, I'm not afraid to say when I don't know something, but I can look into it. Yeah, I uh, I used to think I knew everything, and then I realized that that was uh, that was wrong. Um, but what I what I have learned is to surround myself with great people and not have all the answers, but be able to ask great questions. And uh, and that and that that gets that that really creates a lot of collaboration and a lot of value. Look, it's uh, we're going to keep you from um, getting to your travels. I think we'll wrap things up. Um, this was Colin Livingston from Cantor. Colin. Um, if people want to reach out to you, how do they call you and how do they find you on the web? Uh, office number here is 780-436-2000. Uh, we're also easy to find on our website, www.cantorque.com, which is C-A-N-T-O-R-Q-U-E. Um, I can be found at Colin at cantorque.com, or you're more than welcome to call me directly uh, on my mobile at uh, 780-974-7474. Awesome. Thank you very much, Colin. And uh, that'll be a wrap for this show and catch us on the next episode, folks. Thanks for listening. And there you have it. We truly do hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. If you'd like to find or reach out to either of those on this episode, you can find Colin's company, Cantorque, at cantorque.com. And you can find Don and his company at innovator.ca. Please don't forget to leave a rating. It helps us a lot. And please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening again, and we will see you next time.